Hey there, it's Shannon Ballard. If you're new to Southern Mysteries and you like what you hear, you should know this is an independent show that's made possible by people just like you who support the show via Patreon. Southern Mysteries is staffed by one. I research, write, produce, and edit every episode, and patrons keep Southern Mysteries going. As a thanks for joining Patreon, you get to hear ad-free episodes, the Southern Mysteries archive of the first three seasons of the show, plus patron-exclusive episodes like the new Audacious podcast that focuses on scandalous true crime stories. Thanks to my new patrons who have helped make this episode possible. Ashley from Middleport, Ohio, Allie from Cottonwood, Alabama, Michelle from Livermore, California, Keishley from Eastaboga, Alabama, Shazza from Daytona Beach, Florida, Alicia from Ocala, Florida, Preston from Elkmont, Alabama, Nikki from Lafayette, Louisiana, Carly from Keller, Texas, and Kristen from Lexington, South Carolina, and to patrons listening from mysterious locations and supporting the show, thank you to Jasmine, Blakely, Amy, Pat, Jill, Deborah, Deanna, Olivia, September, and Christy. That support means so much, and I hope you enjoy catching up and listening to all the stories on Patreon. Now, for anyone listening who hasn't checked out Patreon and you want to hear more content you can't hear anywhere else, you can sign up and start listening today if you want to at patreon.com slash southern mysteries. George Stinney Jr. was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death in 1944 for the murder of two girls in small town Alkaloo, South Carolina. George was 14 years old when he was executed. He was black and the girls he was convicted of killing were white. Even in the Jim Crow South, black and white people spoke out against George Stinney's death sentence. Some believe George was railroaded by a police department set on making an arrest for murders that shocked a small town. Others felt even if George was guilty of murder, it was wrong to execute a child. Until 2014, George Stinney was known as the youngest killer executed in 20th century America. But 2014 was the year that changed everything in this case. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of George Stinney Jr. George Stinney Jr. was born in South Carolina in 1929. He had two brothers and sisters, and in 1944, the 14-year-old lived with his family in Alkaloo, South Carolina. Alkaloo is a quiet farming community in Clarendon County, about 50 miles east of Columbia. In 1944, black and white families lived a segregated existence under Jim Crow laws. In Alkaloo, railroad tracks divided the white and black sections of the town. George Stinney Sr. worked for the Alderman Lumber Company, the Stennies lived in a rented, company-owned tenant house. 
George Sr. and his wife, Amy, were known as strict parents. Their children knew exactly what was expected of them. They went to school each day and immediately returned home to do their homework and their chores. The Stinney children later explained they didn't have much, but their parents made sure they were taken care of. George worked hard at the lumber company, and Amy had done domestic work for a prominent white family. Friday, March 24th of 1944 was a perfect spring day in Alkaloo. The sun was shining, and flowers had just started to bloom. That afternoon, after school, 11-year-old Betty June Benneker and her 7-year-old friend, Mary Emma Timms, left home to pick flowers. They rode their bikes along the railroad tracks and then walked into an area on the opposite side of the tracks, where they played and looked for flowers. Around the same time, George Stinney Jr. returned home from school and started working on his chores with his nine-year-old sister, Amy Lou. The Stinneys had a cow they called Lizzie, and every day the children milked and grazed her. That day, George and Amy Lou led Lizzie out to the field between the house and the railroad tracks, where they encountered two white girls pushing their bikes. The girls said hello to the Stinney siblings and asked if they knew where they could find maypop flowers. The Stinney children said they didn't know where to find them, and the girls moved on. That evening, the Stinney family were at a neighbor's home when word began to spread that these two girls had not returned home. Betty June Benneker and Mary Emma Thames were missing. Their parents knew something was wrong when the girls didn't return home on time. Like most of the children in their town, they loved playing in the woods and knew the area well. Their families were immediately worried that something had gone wrong and the girls were in trouble. The Alderman Lumber Company organized a search party with their employees, including George Stinney Sr. and Jr. Just about everyone in the town of Alkaloo volunteered to help that search. They searched throughout the night and into the early morning the next day. Around 7.30 in the morning, the search for these girls ended when the bodies of Betty June and Mary Emma were discovered by a search team that included civilians Francis Batson, Sam Perry, and George Burke. One of the men had noticed small footprints in soft ground, and the group decided to follow the trail where they came across a pair of scissors on the ground. The search teams had been told Betty June had taken scissors to cut flowers, so that was their clue to track those footsteps, and within minutes, they were standing on the side of a water-filled ditch that was covered by thick thorn bushes. One of the men noticed the outline of a child's bicycle under the water. In a 2013 interview, Francis Batson explained one of the men screamed out and pointed to the girls. They were lying on their backs in the ditch with a bicycle on top of them. Bicycle handlebars were found in some brush away from the ditch. Batson immediately reacted to try to help the girls. He moved the bodies to see if the girls were still because they were injured. 
But as soon as he moved them, he realized they were both dead. Betty June had severe head wounds in the back of her skull. Mary Emma had five separate skull fractures. The cause of death in both cases was determined to be the result of severe trauma to the head. The girls had been viciously beaten with a heavy, blunt object. Doctors who examined the girls ruled out sexual assault. The shock of the murder of these innocent girls led police to rush and make an arrest. A volunteer from the search party met with police and mentioned he overheard George Stinney Jr. mention he had spoken to these girls the day they went missing. Police immediately went to the Stinney's home and questioned George and his older half-brother Johnny. They released Johnny and began to interrogate George alone at the local sheriff's office. There were no Miranda warnings in 1944. The interrogation happened without a parent being present, and George Stinney had no legal representation. Clarendon County Sheriff's Deputy H.S. Newman and a representative from the governor's office, Officer S.J. Pratt, questioned George. As the interrogation continued, law enforcement searched the Stinney home for evidence related to the murders, but found nothing. George Stinney Jr. was small for his age. He was 14 years old and weighed just over 90 pounds. So you can imagine how intimidating it must have been to be a black child in a room with white men questioning him about the murder of two white girls in 1944. Less than an hour into the interrogation, Deputy H.S. Newman announced George Stinney Jr. confessed to the crime. But Deputy Newman never presented a record of that confession. There's no transcript of George Stinney's admission of guilt, and there was no physical evidence that George Stinney murdered Betty June and Mary Emma. Still, George Stinney was held in jail until a coroner's inquest could convene. The night George was arrested, the managers of the Alderman Lumber Company fired his father. The company ordered the Stinney family to vacate the company home the same night. People around town began to threaten the lives of the Stinney family. And George Stinney Sr. knew the family had to flee because they were all in danger. They went to stay with family in Sumter County. An arrest warrant was officially issued for George Stinney Jr. following a coroner's inquest on March 29th. From the start, things didn't add up with the inquest. Two of the men who found the girls' bodies were part of the coroner's jury. Sam Perry was on the jury, along with George Burke. Four days earlier, he had led the search party that found the girls' bodies and then served as foreman of the coroner's inquest jury, which found these girls came to their death at the hands of George Stinney Jr. and recommended George be held for murder. The murder indictment was handed down in large part due to Deputy Newman's description of George Stinney's confession. In court, Deputy Newman explained George made a full confession and told Newman where a piece of iron 
about 15 inches long could be located. It had been reported early on that the murder weapon was a railroad spike, but that has never been proven. Newman claimed George told him he put it in a ditch near the girls' bodies. Newman said later the same day, Stenny was taken to the crime scene with police, where he led them to the murder weapon, a large railroad spike. The grief and shock that spread through the town of Alkalu turned to outrage when word spread about Stenny's confession, including details Newman mentioned about the confession. Allegedly, George told police he killed Mary Emma because he wanted to have sex with Betty June, and the girls got upset, so he murdered them. Within hours of that news spreading across town, an angry mob gathered and marched toward the Clarendon County Jail, intent on lynching George Stinney on the night of March 26. Sheriff's deputies heard about the mob and were able to transport George to the safety of the county jail in the city of Columbia, where he could be held in a more secure facility. On April 24, 1944, just one month after his arrest, George Stinney Jr. stood trial for the murder of Betty June and Mary Emma. George's family had been run out of town, which meant he had no support in the courtroom. About 1,500 people filled that courthouse with people standing in the back of the courtroom and downstairs and hallways just to be present for this trial. Considering the high-profile case, you would imagine a defense attorney would at least ask for a change of venue. But that didn't happen. George Stinney was appointed a local tax attorney for his defense. 30-year-old Charles Plowden was an aspiring politician who had never tried a criminal case and seemed annoyed to have to defend George Stinney. After all, his client confessed. All he was required to do was show up in court and wait until his client was convicted. The all-white jury heard first from prosecutor Frank McLeod, who introduced Newman's account of Stinney's confession into evidence. There were two statements Newman attributed as confessions. First, Newman said George encountered the girls picking flowers, and as he tried to help them, the younger girl accidentally fell in a ditch. George tried to help her, but both of the girls turned on him and attacked him. Newman said Stenny told him he hit the girls with a railroad spike, but he only did it to protect himself. But Newman's second statement was a different version of how the girls died. In that report from Newman, George Stinney told him he followed the girls into the woods and wanted to have sex with Betty June, so he killed Mary Emma by hitting her with the railroad spike. When Betty June tried to run away, he chased her and killed her with that railroad spike. The prosecution called Dr. R.F. Baker to testify. Dr. Baker performed the post-mortem exam. The following portion of the autopsy report was read into testimony. We examined the body of an 11-year-old white girl. There was evidence of at least seven blows on the head of the child that seemed to have been made by a blunt instrument with a small round head 
about the size of a hammer. Some of these have only cracked the skull, while two punched definite holes in the skull. The state presented no murder weapon, despite Deputy Newman's claim that George led him to one. In fact, in the official records of the George Stinney trial, no murder weapon has ever been positively identified. With no official record of George Stinney's confession and only circumstantial evidence, it was expected that Stinney's defense would call a lot of witnesses. There seemed to be a lot of avenues to pursue in fighting to establish reasonable doubt. But Plowden did not mount a defense for George Stinney. He never called a single witness or presented any evidence at trial. Plowden's only argument was that George Stinney was a child and too young to be held responsible for his crimes. George Stinney's trial lasted just under three hours. It took the all-white jury 10 minutes to deliberate and return a guilty verdict. George was sentenced to die by electrocution at Central Correctional Institution in Columbia, South Carolina. His date of execution was set for June 16, 1944. George's defense, Charles Plowden, never filed an appeal for his client. But for two months, the NAACP and several churches and unions appealed to South Carolina Governor Olin Johnston to stop the execution. He refused. At 7.30 a.m. on June 16, 1944, four guards escorted George Stinney Jr. to the death chamber. When asked if he had any final words, George remained silent. 14-year-old George Stinney Jr. was slight of frame and just over 90 pounds. He carried a Bible under one arm and held it close as the guards attempted to strap him into the electric chair. George's slight frame made it difficult for the men to strap him firmly into the seat. It also made it difficult for the guard responsible for affixing an electrode to George's right leg and placing the face mask on George. Everything was ill-fitting. Nothing went as planned on the guard's part because 14-year-old George Stinney Jr. was sitting in an electric chair designed for adults. When the switch was flipped, the force of the electricity caused the mass to fall from George Stinney's head. His head was exposed to the gallery witnessing the execution. Several would later speak out about that moment, saying they would never forget the horror on the face of George Stinney in those final moments. The George Stinney case and trial had been state and at times regional news. It was 1944, and the country was understandably focused on World War II. But after George was executed, the story made national news, as the 14-year-old was the youngest person executed in the 20th century. People across the country started asking questions we still ask today. How could South Carolina execute a child? Why didn't his defense appeal? For Charles Plowden, an aspiring politician 
who was aiming for a state position in 1944, defending George Stinney wasn't on his wish list, and he felt the trial would cause an issue for his political career. In an interview years after George's execution, Plowden was asked about the appeal and said there was nothing to appeal on and added the Stinney family had no money to fund efforts to continue the case. As to George's age, at the time of his execution, the law in South Carolina in 1944 allowed for capital prosecution of a 14-year-old defendant. When George walked into court for his trial, he was 14 years and five months old. George's family remained quiet for decades. They were traumatized by what happened to him and the threats against their family, which continued long after George's execution. In 1994, George's sister, Catherine Robinson, was interviewed to discuss the 50th anniversary of the case. She revealed that George wrote to her parents while he was on death row. He wrote to assure his family he was innocent, and the family never wavered in their support of George. Betty June Benneker's sister, Vermel Tucker, was interviewed in the same article, marking the 50th anniversary. She, along with the majority of the loved ones of the murder victims, Betty June and Mary Emma, believed George Stinney was the person who killed the girls. Some of their family didn't agree with the execution of George, but they did view him as the person responsible for the deaths. In 2013, the Stinney family decided it was time to take legal action. George's siblings retained South Carolina attorneys Matt Burgess, Ray Chandler, Steve McKenzie, and the Charleston School of Law professor Miller Shaley. Their mission was to set aside the 70-year-old conviction and execution of George Stinney. George's siblings, who resided in the Stinney home, in 1944, were never questioned by police and never called to the stand by his defense. If they had been asked about George's whereabouts, they could have provided George with an alibi. They were able to enter that alibi into the record during depositions in 2014. George had been at home during the time the murders took place and therefore could not have killed Betty June and Mary Emma. In 2014, George Stinney Jr.'s conviction was vacated, and George was legally exonerated. Judge Carmen Mullen ruled George had been denied a fair trial, and his Sixth Amendment rights had been violated. Judge Mullen noted law enforcement testified to a confession, yet no written confession exists in the record. George Stinney Jr.'s exoneration in 2014 can never make things right. Justice can't really be served because justice was denied for George in 1944. George's exoneration means there's a mystery that may never be solved in Alkaloo. If George Stinney Jr. was innocent, who killed Mary Emma Timms and Betty June Binnaker? There are few surviving witnesses to discuss the case, 
and there was hardly an investigation into the murders. No physical evidence was ever collected. There are alternative theories, and one name keeps coming up among the surviving witnesses and people who remember what happened in Alkaloo in 1944. George Burke. Rumors spread around Alkaloo in the days after the girls were murdered and George Stinney Jr. was arrested. Rumors that police had the wrong person. Instead of George Stinney Jr., some people in Alkaloo believe police should have looked into the Burke boys. George Burke Sr. and George Burke Jr. George Burke Sr. was part of the search team that discovered the girls' bodies. He also owned the land where those bodies were discovered. This is the same George Burke who served on the inquest jury for George Stinney's murder indictment. All anyone ever heard was rumors, but rumors and speculation is what led to George Stinney Jr.'s death. Amy, George's sister, had lived in fear of speaking out about George's story for a long time. But when she and her siblings filed their motion that led to George's exoneration in 2014, she was willing to talk to Sonia Edie Williamson. Sonia was featured in the 2018 Charleston Post Courier profile of Alkaloo and the George Stinney Jr. case. She's related to some prominent white families from Alkaloo, and her mother knew Betty June Binnaker. They had gone to school together. Sonia had always heard stories about what happened back in 1944 from her family, but she kept wondering, what really happened? She couldn't get George Stinney's case out of her mind, so she headed to Alkaloo to talk to some of the older community members to see if they had any perspective, any idea, who could have killed those girls. She knocked on doors, and some people answered and agreed to talk. She kept hearing the same theory. The real killer was a rich white man whose dad used his power and relationship to steer the cops to George Stinney Jr. Sonia asked George's sister Amy what she thought about this theory. Amy pointed out that their mother had done domestic work for the Burke family. She and her siblings remember one night when their mom came home and told their father George Burke Jr. had made a pass at her. George Stinney Sr. told his wife not to go back to the Burke house, and she never did. Now, the word around town in 1944 was that the Burke boys were known as womanizers, especially George Burke Jr. Amy, who was with George when Betty June and Mary Emma stopped to ask about Maypops, mentioned something that never came up at George's trial. After the girls stopped to ask about those flowers and then walked on, a lumber truck drove down the road, headed in the same direction the girls walked. George Burke Jr. died in 1947, and George Burke Sr. has long since died. One member of the Burke family agreed to talk to Sonia Edie Williamson when she knocked on his door. George Burke Jr.'s son, Wayne. He was young in 1944 and barely remembered his father, 
who died just a few years after the murders. His grandparents raised him, and most of what he knows about his dad came from stories they told him. Wayne recalled that his grandmother told him on the day the girls went missing, they stopped by his grandparents' home. They were walking around the neighborhood, asking if people wanted to join them on their search for Maypops. While the girls were there, his father drove up in a lumber truck. George Burke Jr. offered the girls a ride. They threw their bikes in the back of his truck, hopped in, and were never seen alive again. Sonia was shocked, but the pieces seemed to fit. People who saw the crime scene where the girls were found and have researched this case for decades quickly point out a lot didn't add up at that crime scene. The girls had been bludgeoned, yet there was very little blood at the scene. It appeared as though they may have been dragged to where their bodies were discovered or dumped at that location. But police never investigated the possibility of another crime scene. And we'll never know if they knew about the lumber truck that was seen in the area because it's not mentioned in any remaining records. Could George Burke Jr. have killed the girls and used his truck to transport their bodies to the area on the Burke's land where the bodies were discovered? When the Charleston Post and Courier asked members of Betty June and Mary Emma's families about that claim, Betty June's niece said the right person was convicted and further claimed the movement to clear George Stinney's name was all about money. Mary Emma's cousin said you can't change history and wish people would move on because her family's been branded as racist. George Stinney's family can relate to being accused of being something you're not. They had to endure threats against their lives and were driven from their home because people said they were the family of a child killer. George Stinney Jr. is no longer listed in historical records as the youngest killer who was executed in 20th century America. He's the youngest person executed in 20th century America. There's now a memorial for George Stinney Jr. in Alkaloo with an inscription which reads, George Stinney Jr., born October 21st, 1929, died June 16th, 1944. Wrongfully convicted, illegally executed by South Carolina, Conviction vacated by court order in 2014. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. As George Stinney's family mentioned when he was exonerated, justice has always been denied for George. And it seems it will always be denied for Betty June Benneker and Mary Emma Thames. Thanks for listening to this episode of Southern Mysteries. You can find sources and learn more about this independent podcast at southernmysteries.com. Southern Mysteries exists because of the core support from patrons who love these stories and want to hear more. 
If you would like to learn more about supporting the show via Patreon and access episodes that are only available to patrons, you can check out patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries. Thanks so much for listening. Be all right. We're